0: You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network,
1: including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now,
0: wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast
1: do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com. For more information, you can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the violent and cold-blooded murder of a California teenager at the hands of two of his friends. What's most disturbing about this case were the motivations of these two killers. And I'd like to add a special warning to this episode that I'll briefly be discussing descriptions of animal torture. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So, if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter with the handle at Murder of My Fam, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for The Murder of My Family. And you can also listen to the show for free on the Spreaker app, and even interact with me by commenting on episodes that I can read and respond to your comments. If you'd like to help support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early and ad free episodes of the show or bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include stickers thank you cards, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash TheMurderOfMyFamily. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder Of My Family the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Michael Russell was just 15 years old when he was killed. He had just turned 15 less than a month before his tragic and untimely murder. Michael was born to Carl and Kathy Russell. He grew up in San Jose, California, and was attending Santa Teresa High School. He lived with his mom, but his extended family lived close by and stayed very close to him his entire life. And Michael's family didn't call him Michael, but rather he was Mikey to them. From the time he was little, he had a quirky sense of humor. He loved building forts in the living room. He loved video games and was very good at them. He beat everyone he played, including adults, and he'd giggle as he outscored them. According to family, he was a little rascal. He took Taekwondo lessons alongside some of his family. He used to do what he called Urban Ninja, where he and a friend would do top-secret stunts or missions out in public, using things like cardboard and planners to hide behind. As he got older, Michael was into playing the guitar, and he wanted to start a band. In short, Michael was a typical teenager, carefree and having fun. He was just at that stage of his life where his voice was starting to get a little deeper. He was growing up, but still a kid. And to all those that knew him, he was thoughtful and kind. On November 10, 2009, at around 6 p.m., teenagers Jay Williams and Randy Thompson went to Michael's home on Comanche Drive in San Jose, California. The three went to Santa Teresa High School together. Fifteen-year-old Michael was home alone, and he was wearing his pajamas, just lounging, when the two showed up at his door. He invited the boys into his backyard to do things that typical teenagers would do. Their plan was to smoke some pot, but they didn't have a lighter. Michael tried to go back inside to get one, but discovered that he had accidentally locked himself out. So he made his way to the backyard shed to try and find a lighter instead. When Michael came out of the shed, 15-year-old Jay and 16-year-old Randy pounced on him without warning, putting a plan they had made in advance of attacking Michael into action. According to Jay himself, as later quoted in the East Bay Times, the attack lasted a good six minutes though it must have felt like an eternity for Michael once he realized they were not kidding around. After the attack, Jay felt for a pulse and thought Michael was dead, but just in case, he slit his throat. Two different knives were used in the attack, one a regular kitchen knife and the other was a switchblade. These were later found by one of Randy Thompson's siblings, covered in blood, in the pocket of one of two hoodies that had been hidden under a car in his driveway. The boys were asked about the bloody knife, and Jay told Randy Thompson's parents that he had killed a cat with a knife, as if that was somehow going to be a normal answer. Meanwhile, at about 8.30 p.m., Michael's uncle came to the home to visit, and that's when he found Michael in a pool of blood on the ground. Though he was cold to the touch, his uncle tried desperately to perform CPR, but he couldn't save him, and 15-year-old Michael was pronounced dead at 10.42 p.m. The hunt for Michael's killers was a short one, though, and it quickly led police to Jay and Randy. The two teens tried to make up alibis for themselves. They claimed they were hanging out together in Randy's backyard the whole time, but Jay's family said that wasn't true. Leslie Thompson, Randy's older sister, recalled the two being at the Williams' home until around 5 p.m., and they came back to the Williams' home after dark. While the two had been gone, Leslie had rifled through Randy's backpack, which he had left in the kitchen. There were dark clothes, old shoes, tools, and a list with instructions for cutting power to a house from its breaker box. She also found drawings that Randy had left in his backpack. They were drawings of Randy and Jay as stick figures with devil horns, nicknamed Grim and Gore. They appeared to be stabbing angels in some of the drawings, and some writing accompanied the sketches. According to the Mercury News, one page included the scrawled message, Better now than later. At least he went quick and painless, I think. Sorry your son's dead. Maybe your other kids can live long lives. Wait, that was your only kid. Sorry. This message was written in advance of the murder of Michael Russell. Sick, twisted, and disgusting to say the least. The hoodies and knives had been hidden before investigators searched the Thompson home, but a bloody knife was found shoved behind towels in the master bathroom and the hoodies had been dumped behind a shopping center just blocks from the Thompson home. The blood on the sweaters and the knives was later tested. It was Michael Russell's. While both teens ultimately blamed each other, Jay Williams made it clear that the attack wasn't random. There was a reason for what they did. According to the East Bay Times, Jay said that they killed Michael Russell, and I quote here, just because we wanted to. He even admitted that he and Randy had been waiting for the opportunity to attack Michael for about six weeks. At the time, their MySpace pages featured posts about wanting to be able to see Satan while on shrooms. Jay's confession that the bloody attack had been planned out weeks in advance meant that the two young men could be tried as adults to face a first-degree murder charge. There was no question it was clearly premeditated, and that was a requirement needed to push that charge. A teen who attended Santa Teresa High School with Jay and Randy testified that around 10 students at the school, including themselves, Jay and Randy were Satanists, and part of that involved animal sacrifices. Jay brought a dead rabbit to school in his backpack once, and another student testified that the two had showed her photos of a rabbit being tortured, as well as video of a cat on fire. At the time of Michael's murder, students at Santa Teresa High were shocked. One girl, a 17-year-old, Recall that the three boys all hung out all the time. She also said that a lot of people doubted that the two boys had killed Michael. Other people described Brandy as being funny but loud, and Jay was even described as being polite. Because the two had made conflicting statements blaming each other, they each had their own trial. Jay Williams was found guilty and sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. The first trial for Randy Thompson resulted in a hung jury because they couldn't decide on whether it was a first- or second-degree murder. In 2016, a second trial for Randy Solomon found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 26 years to life. In 2018, a new law, SB 1391, passed in California, making it impossible for anyone under the age of 16 to be tried as an adult. Because Randy Thompson was 16 when he helped murder Michael Russell, this new law had no impact on his sentence. However... Jay was only 15 when he committed the murder. Even though the murder happened in 2009, Jay's case was still considered active because he was appealing a sentence. So it was transferred back to the juvenile court under this new law. Despite the law being passed in 2018 and him already being sentenced, the active status meant that the new law did apply to the old case. Jay's lawyer believes he's been rehabilitated and since he's been in prison has earned his high school diploma and undergone therapy. But can anyone that tortures animals and kills a friend just because they wanted to ever truly be rehabilitated? In November 2021, a four-week stay was placed on Jay's release. He's now 27 years old, but requires a rehab program targeted juveniles. Michael Russell's mom, Kathy Russell, summed up the situation nicely when she told the Mercury News, We're moving backwards. It's just unbelievable. Now we're waiting to see when a killer will be set free and what, if any, conditions he will be under. It's a frightening possibility that this person will be walking the streets once again. I sat down with Michael Russell's aunt, Carrie, to discuss Michael's life and his tragic death and the possibility that one of Michael's killers might be getting out of prison. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Every Plate, America's best value meal kit. While most meal kits come with a premium price tag, every plate offers delicious dinners that won't break the bank. Every plate's quality ingredients come carefully packed and pre-portioned, helping you save money and reduce food waste, like that bag of mixed greens you throw out every week. As a result, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping, making it the easiest way to eat affordably. Choose between 17 recipes that change each week and swap proteins, veggies, and sides to your liking. What sets every plate apart from the competition is that you get great food shipped to your door at a great price. At first, I was skeptical thinking meal kits might be expensive, but now I'm convinced you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price. Best of all, every plate cuts out trips to the grocery store and stressful meal planning, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. My wife and I recently tried the griddled onion burgers, and it was amazing. And with the money we saved, we took the kids out for ice cream. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you can try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. Get started with every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. That's up to a $104 value. Hi, Carrie, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your nephew Michael's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you here. What happened to your nephew, who's just 15, is really disturbing. I know when you reached out to me, you mentioned your motivation for coming on the show was to bring awareness to the fact that due to a, a new law one of the people that tortured and murdered your nephew is uh, possibly going to walk free. So uh, we'll definitely get into that and, and talk about that because that's a whole nother issue. But just to start off, can you give us an idea of who your nephew was and maybe uh, what kind of person he was and some of your memories of him?
0: Michael, um, well, he was 15. He um, had just been 15 a little over 20 days, um, nice, shy kid, soft spoken, loved computers, music, was the kind of kid that wanted to, um, have a little garage band, but just never really got around to it. Um, animal lover. He was really close with all of his cousins. Um, he was just the kind of kid that, um, I think that he had a hard time making friends, but once he did, he was really sweet and the kind of kid that you trusted, you know. He, he was always the same, just a nice, soft-spoken, um, thoughtful, considerate, um, really sweet, and funny, great sense of
1: humor. Was there any issues with anyone? Did he have any uh, enemies or any that uh, people that, you know, he had run-ins with, that kind of stuff?
0: No, not at all. Not at all. Never anything like that.
1: Now, when this happened, and, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when this happened, you found out who these uh, people were that did this to him. Did he know them? Was he friendly with them? And and did your family know them at all and and who they were?
0: So they actually turned out to be two classmates and they were very familiar with him. We just didn't know them. Um, Jay Williams and Randy Thompson um, had been classmates of Michael since junior high.
1: So these weren't two strangers to him. He, he knew them.
0: Yeah, he did.
1: Was he on a friendly basis with, did he hang out with them or was it more of a, you know, just a, a fellow classmate that he didn't really interact with all that much?
0: So it start, it sounds like they had started to develop friendships over um over the months before Michael was killed that they had actually um had started hanging out at the house of one of the um of Randy Thompson he lived closer to the school. So um, it sounds like they were developing a friendship and definitely Michael trusted them. I think that may have made it easier in the end for them to target him the way that they did.
1: Yeah, which is is pretty disturbing in itself, some of the details about that. Um, Let's go back to the fall of 2009 in November. How did things unfold that ultimately led to Michael's death? So um,
0: it started about a month, a month prior to that. I guess they had been, Randy Thompson and Jay Williams had a plan together that they wanted to kill somebody. They just hadn't picked a target. And apparently when they went to school on November 10th, 2009, they had decided that the person that they were gonna kill was gonna be Michael. They um identified him to another friend who just thought that they were talking crazy and didn't believe it. So when they identified Michael, they didn't say anything because they thought that the guys were just, you know, just you know, sometimes kids say off the wall mean you know trying to make themselves look like tough guys or whatever so they identified michael nobody knew michael went um home that day no problem and um it was either that day or the day after when um they showed up at his house to hang out and it was only about 5 p.m people had gone out shopping michael was home alone when they knocked on the door, he answered.
1: And what happened after they came in?
0: They um, went into the backyard and apparently the the three of them were hanging out in the backyard. And um, Randy Thompson and Jay Williams had a maybe like a little signal that they would give each other when they were going to attack. I don't know what that was. I only know that um, Jay Williams testified that at some point they jumped on top of Michael and Michael thought that they were kidding and didn't realize that it wasn't a game until they started stabbing him.
1: So he, he was stabbed and he was, he was stabbed several times. Is that correct?
0: Yes. He was stabbed multiple times. Um, They, um, stabbed vital organs they um stabbed him in the neck they basically um the way that i look at it is they made sure that he wasn't going to get back up
1: uh, It's just a, a horrible unbelievable attack it doesn't sound like two people that were sort of friendly would just do that out of the blue but obviously they, these were uh a couple disturbed individuals. Yeah. Did, did they flee the scene?
0: They did. Um, so Randy Thompson lives or lived about a mile and a half away from where Michael lived. Um, they did that and went back to his house. Um, yeah, they did that, walked back to Randy Thompson's house and, um, went to go eat dinner at Randy Thompson's
1: house. I like go, it's no big deal.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. And and who was it that found Michael?
0: His uncle. His uncle came home looking for him and found him in the backyard. And, and he, you know, it was too
1: late. He was already gone. Yeah and I, that must have been something that he'll never forget finding him like that. Did he call 911 right away?
0: He he did. Um,
1: that's really the whole thing is
0: like a horror film. Um, later on, I would hear the tapes in court. You know, I decided to sit in and hear evidence that um, nobody else wanted to hear. And that was, that was part of it was the 911 tape and um you hear that kind of thing um in films and TV all the time but when it's real it is um indescribable how um bone chilling and horrific it is and, and- it's just been it's been a, just absolutely traumatic and something that stays with you it's been over twelve years and it's like all time really does is make it so that you can you survive it, but it really um it's all there right under the surface. Yeah. And I, I, I should say that these two boys, Randy and Jay, um, they had a history of torturing animals, bullying and setting fires. It's just that we didn't know them, so we didn't find out anything about them until the trial,
1: yeah, and that's, and they
0: were arrested the next day
1: well and that's what I was going to say so they weren't any kind of criminal masterminds that got away with this uh, the the police closed in on them pretty quickly how were they uh identified by police as the ones that did this and and um how did that go down
0: uh, so That's a story in itself. So Randy and Jay went to Randy's house. Um, Randy's sister, Leslie, um, who they were all around the same age, she had a friend um, spending the night at her house, having a sleepover. So Randy and Jay stashed the knives that they used in, um, in their hoodies and then put them under the tire of a vehicle. Well, the older brother came home to have dinner with his family and he, not knowing what these hoodies were, brought them in the house and he's like, hey, who do these belong to? And he notices that they're kind of heavy and shakes them and um, reaches into the pocket and pulls out an eight-inch butcher knife that is bent and bloody in front of everybody. And the family didn't call the police it was the next day when the girls the sister's friend heard about a fellow classmate that had been stabbed to death the night before and um and michael was missing from school and she knew who he was a guidance counselor at school and they called the police
1: and then they went there and arrested them without any kind of incident
0: yeah, I guess um, the way that went down is they were um, speaking with students from school. So um, it might have been under the guise of, you know, we just need to know if you know anything and if you can help us. Huh. I, I don't believe that they were arrested at school. I think they went willingly.
1: Well, And it seems like they pretty quickly started pointing the finger at each other. You know, they started off as a, a team doing this evil thing that they did, but started pointing the finger at each other what What kind of things were they saying? Were they just basically saying it was his idea, or he's the one that actually stabbed them? What kind of uh, fight were they having sort of with each other?
0: So Jay Williams actually gave a statement to the police where he um, he kind of confessed to what they did. Um, he confessed that. They had been killing animals, and basically when they became bored with that, they decided that they wanted a human target, and the reason that they chose Michael was they believed that he would be an easier target, Um, and Jay Williams' own words, he said that if they were to attack somebody on the street, that person may have a weapon or may be a better fighter, and you know you wouldn't want that so they targeted somebody that trusted him
1: yeah that um, would have their Randy barred, Thompson barred
0: down. yeah Randy Thompson on the other hand um he didn't he never really gave a statement so in um in court their trials were separated and um and each one kind of tried to say that they we're not the one that they didn't testify but through their attorneys attempted to make it look like it was the other guy that did it. Uh, but that didn't work.
1: Yeah, yeah, sort of. But in
0: the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, Jay Williams is, um and his 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 statement was able to be used in court. It was devastating and it was on video. But then it seems like, because I'm going by memory, it seems like um, the the questioning with the detective, who the detective interviewed him more like a father figure, it wasn't like they were browbeating him. They talked for what seemed like maybe an hour, um, but I guess that may have been condensed. And Jay Williams eventually said we were just basically just bored and wanted to kill somebody. Wow.
1: Huh. It's it's scary and they were that it satanists. Was, they, yeah that that was one thing I read that they were satanists that they did all this stuff to animals uh it just very disturbing stuff and uh it, it sounds like either one of these kids would have been dangerous but when they got together that may have pushed them both over the top.
0: Yes, that's what kind of what the
1: prosecutor said. Wow, and did that did Michael's murder did that. And when the details emerged about these guys and what they had done and in, in their background, when that came out, did the the community sort of uh, get shocked by all of that?
0: I would say I would say so, absolutely. Um, it was heavily in the news and in, in my town, um, in my city, and whenever we had court dates or um memorials and things like that people were really supportive I just feel like as years have gone by it's it's definitely been less and less so when we're now at the point where one of them is going to be released um it's kind of like screaming into the void but yeah it was horrifying absolutely horrifying because um, the side of town that I live in is almost like its own separate city um, the south side of San Jose and Santa Teresa High School that's a, a huge school and a big community and it was very well publicized
1: it's bad enough just dealing with the fact that Michael died and that he was murdered but then you have all these other shocking details on top of it must have been a whole nother hell for your for you and your family to have to hear all that
0: it was really like one thing being added on top of the other you know and every time you think that you've um digested the worst of it you hear a little more and a little more um looking back it's almost like almost like that happened to somebody else. I've had people ask me how you survived something like that. And I think to myself, I don't, I don't really know. It's looking back. It's, I, I, I can't believe that all of that was real, even though I experienced it. I sat through three murder trials and, and I still find it really hard to believe that any of that was real. Yeah. Uh.
1: Almost like you're you're viewing it like as you mentioned earlier, I think like a, a movie sort of. It's like it's not happening to you, maybe.
0: It feels that way, absolutely. I used to watch the show The First Forty Eight all the time, and sometimes I feel like, okay, you can roll the credits now and give me my nephew back, and we'll all go home.
1: Mm. So eventually. These two men, young men, I should say, uh, were accountable, held accountable, and they were, I think Randy Thompson was 16. He was sentenced to 26 years in prison. Jay Williams was given the same sentence, but because he was 15, um, that later on would cause an issue. Um, yes. At the time, were you satisfied with the sentences?
0: At the time I was, um, we were, but it really didn't take long for there to start being um, issues with, you know, with his attorney attempting to bring up charges or trying to have the the sentence overturned. So it always felt like it could, could be kind of up in the air. But I'd say for a couple of years, it felt like okay, I don't have to think about him anymore. And that's kind of where I was at. Um, Until he was convicted, I always had this thought of, oh, my God, what if he gets out? And We're going to have to worry about him possibly coming after us. But once he was convicted, I would think to myself, I don't have to think about him anymore. Or if I did think about him, it was more like, you know, I'm out here enjoying my life. He's stuck in prison. And then he did that to himself, so uh, there was a little sense of satisfaction with
1: that. Yeah,
0: just didn't
1: last very long. Well, and that's that's sort of a, a good segue because uh, a new law came about that sort of uh, put the put risk to how long these guys would actually serve. Can you talk a little bit about that law and um, how it's affecting the sentencing?
0: Sure. It's um, Senate Bill 1391, and what that has done is made it so that anyone under the age of 16 can no longer be tried as an adult in California, no matter what they do. And um, I guess if the case was still going through the appeals process, uh, they're still eligible, although We believe that cases that have already been, you know, gone through the appellate system will probably eventually, um, these people will be allowed out. So you actually have people who are in their 40s who are being sent back to the juvenile justice system to have their cases looked over and possibly be let out after having committed absolutely horrific crimes. And um, so... Senate Bill 1391 is what's given um, is giving Jay Williams his freedom back.
1: Wow! Because
0: that's... he was 15 at the time.
1: Yeah, and I I understand. You know, I'm not an advocate one for one side or the other, but I I can understand why people would make the point that someone's younger when they commit this crime, they wouldn't be sentenced to the same sentence as someone who's over 18. I can see that part of the argument, but. I think it's clear by that age, 15, 16 years old, you know right from wrong. You know you're not supposed to murder someone that's pretty common sense. So that it's a pretty weak argument that they, because they're, you know, just under 16, that they shouldn't be held to a pretty serious sentence um, right. because they should know right from wrong. And that's, that's uh, I can see how you would be outraged by that.
0: Yeah, and my thoughts about that is, it's fine that they want to um, reevaluate and, and take extra care when it comes to younger people, but let's not let's not just say, okay, well, he's under 16, they cannot, and then you know they've got this whole host of things that they can't do. Um, I I think it's insane that they don't factor in what they've done. Because my whole thing is, I don't don't believe that all crimes are the same. Um, We do have to take into account how old they are. But if you don't take into account what they've done and a a history of violent crimes or a history of animal torture and think that you're going to turn somebody out, you know, around in a matter of, Of years, that's just not what, evidentially, that's not what we, what we know. That's why we started trying minors as adults in the first place. Especially in California, we had a a serious problem with youthful offenders that were committing horrific acts, and there wasn't really an appropriate way to deal with them. So, they had to try them as adults, and it's kind of like people. Over the years, we we get um, short sighted and forget that, and now we're sitting here with this.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's a one of the worst. It's a it's a timely situation because I think California right now is getting a, a reputation in a lot of circles for being soft on crime. Do you think that sort of played into it that they're they're making laws that are, that are not being as hard as they should towards criminals.
0: Absolutely. Yes, they uh, do, do.
1: And is there any way to stop or overturn this law? Is there any kind of pushback against it?
0: Um, it's gone through the appellate process. We we tried first. We tried to when when Jerry Brown was still um the governor, we tried to get a meeting with him. Uh, he wasn't having having it. Um. And then along with other families, we some of them went through the entire court process. Well, everybody has, all the way to the California Supreme Court. And um, some cases, a, a few cases, actually, the, the court said, okay, it's unconstitutional in this case. But um, in our case, it's been upheld. So we're we're doing the fighting that we can. It's just being met with a lot of resistance um from California senators and I do think that it's because they they um have this attitude of being of redemption, of leniency, of um giving people treatment and second chances and all of that is great on paper. I'm not against that at all, but I just think it needs to be applied appropriately.
1: Sure. And and I'm curious what would the sentence have been back then for someone that wasn't tried as an adult the same kind of crime.
0: Um actually very similar to um what he's faced now. About about 10 years.
1: So he's at least one of these guys is realistically about to walk out of jail what in a matter of months
0: yeah yeah
1: and and he I believe this summer okay and he's going to be what in his 20s he um
0: he'll be 28
1: okay and and the uh, and the other one even if he re- completes his term he'll be what in his his 40s um
0: so um with um uh, with Randy Thompson he because of a different law, he's eligible to apply for um, release after he served 20 years. So that's a possibility that he's that he'll be released after, you know, after serving 20 instead of 26.
1: Oh, it, it's frightening that that two people that can team up for something so brutal and savage and take the life of a, a 15-year-old uh, can do that little bit of time and and just be right back out on their streets to carry out the rest of their lives.
0: Very frightening. And it's, the fact that they, that they did this to Michael and they're walking away, or at least Jay is, is one thing. But the fear that they may go on and do this to someone else it's really hard to, um, to let that go. Huh. I think, I think of um, Jay Williams getting out and think that somewhere out there, there may be somebody whose clock is ticking and they, and they don't know it.
1: Oh, huh. and that's, that's a scary, you know a scary thought. I mean, it's, it's one thing if, if they've actually been rehabilitated and they've, they're sorry for what they've done and they've, learn from this and, and they're not dangerous. But if, on the other hand, if they're still relatively young and they can get out and and someone else could be next, um, that's a scary, scary thought.
0: Yeah, very much, very much. And it often makes me wonder why that's our concern, but it hasn't been the concern of the people who wrote and supported this law. Because it's really, it's really a simple, you know, it would be a simple addendum, a simple caveat that you don't, this doesn't apply to you if you've been that violent. You know, 1391, that you'd have to meet certain criteria. And if you've committed first degree murder, you're not eligible. Hmm. But it's just, it's, you know, one of those blanket laws. This is like there's no doubt that it was premeditated murder and I can't understand the logic of somebody who would think that it's appropriate to to give him a second chance just because he was so young. Yeah. And with no parole, he's he's getting out and he he won't have any supervision. He's free to do whatever he wants.
1: Oh. Well, it's it's almost as if the 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 criminal sometimes is being treated better than the victim.
0: It feels like it sometimes.
1: Uh,
0: it does. And he, not only will he not have any supervision, but his record will be clear. So he gets out at 28 and he won't have to tell a future employer that he did, you know, 10 years in prison or however long he was in there.
1: Oh, uh, And, I'm curious, have either of them ever shown any kind of remorse or apologized or reached out to your family or anything over the years?
0: So I want, a few months ago, there was a hearing in juvenile hall where um, Jay Williams' attorney was fighting to get him released even earlier than, than he's going to be released. And that was the first time that Jay Williams had ever spoke and um offered what I would call an apology um, he he amazingly enough, his entire time incarceration he hasn't been in any trouble. Um, he's very well spoken he he can appear to be um genuine in his thoughts and in his what he says, and to me, that just makes it scarier because i I just I don't believe it. He's, he looks like the kind of person who he can say all of the right things. And I think he could manipulate his way into any situation, but whether or not he really means it is a different story. And I just look at his history of animal torture and then killing somebody who trusted him and have a hard time believing that he has the ability to be sorry.
1: Yeah. And that's the, the scary part is, you know, if someone that can, Sort of blend in and and not raise any suspicion, and you know seems like they're they're changed. You never know know if they really are. Exactly. Well, and and rather than focus on them, you know, I'd like the the, the closing thought to be uh, about your nephew Michael. Um, he was just 15 years old. He's he's been gone now over a decade. Um, when people read a story about him or they hear this podcast or maybe um, they think about him if they knew him, what do you want them to remember about Michael and what do you think his legacy should be?
0: Remember about him that he, if you have a child or a nephew or somebody close in your life, he would, he would be just like that person. He would, whatever good parts, the the smile, the laughter, the video games, all of the things that kids are are into now, that was him. He was the kid in the family where if you couldn't figure out how to hook up an electronic, he was the one that would do it. Um, he was the one that would reach out to be a friend to somebody who, who didn't have friends. And um, I don't know. I just, it's so, it's so hard for me to to tap into who Michael was because of um, the trauma surrounding it and the years that I've spent wondering what he would be doing now, you know?
1: Yeah. Wondering if what he would, be as far as career if he'd have you know a relationship or a family of his own that kind of stuff stuff he was robbed of
0: yeah unfortunately the the memories get colored with um with the reality but um the last time that I saw him was actually on his 15th birthday and um he was sitting on the couch with his feet kicked up and he had a big smile on his face so whenever those memories get clouded, I hang on to that one because it is—it's the most clear for me. It's the last and most clear.
1: Uh-huh. and and that's that's how you'll you'll remember him, and not the 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 bad stuff of what happened, you know, after that.
0: Absolutely, his his legacy and what we try to do in memory of him is reaches far beyond what happened to him.
1: Yeah. Well, and again, I think that it's a good way to close out this this episode rather than talking about the bad people that took him from you. Just rather talking about him directly would be the would, would be a tribute to him. So I, again, I thank you for coming on and, and sharing Michael's story with us and, and bringing attention to that law that exists there in California. Hopefully somehow that can be done away with and, and keep people that are dangerous and do serious crimes like this in prison
0: yes i I thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity
1: thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family i'd like to thank Sonny landon for writing and research assistance in this episode as we wrap up i'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called autopsy be sure to give it a listen We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder, My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hello, friends and neighbors. I am your friendly death investigator, host of the podcast Autopsy. Autopsy is a show where we take real autopsy reports from popular cases and some not so popular, and break down the information discovered by pathologists and how it all led to their final determined cause and manner of death. Think of us as an addendum to many true crime podcasts you may already be a listener of. Every month we release a new episode, and then a more informal discussion episode follows halfway through the month. We are available on virtually every platform, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and even YouTube. So check us out. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program.